0: All right, here we go for the third episode of my podcast. I'm having kind of a lot of fun with these. It's just a bit easier to kind of just go off and talk about some of the stuff without having to worry about setting up a video for it or trying to find video footage. Uh, Sometimes it gets very difficult when I have a good idea trying to find actual footage to go along with it so there's a visual component. Same thing with my blog. I've always tried to include photographs of the species I'm talking about and some pictures of interest to go with these long articles. And some of them get very lengthy. I've had some that are upwards of, you know, six, 7,000 words to give people a little break from the actual text. So being able to just kind of run off at the mouth on these podcasts is going to be, I think, a lot of fun. And hopefully people are enjoying them. I can't stand my own voice, so it kind of blows my mind to think that people might be okay listening to me ramble on for a half hour. So here goes. This one today, we're going to do something that I did before as a blog post, but I kind of want to revisit it. And that is the idea of um, every piece of information or everything you wish you had known when you first got into the hobby. And a lot of us, I think, stumble into this hobby. Some come from other hobbies, like we talked about the last episode, uh, people coming from snakes or reptiles. They see a spider at a show or something, pick it up, and then they scramble to learn the care for it. For me, it was basically I had always wanted a tarantula, although I had been a lifelong arachnophobe and was terrified of them. I had a great respect for them, but they terrified me at the same time. That bothered me because it was kind of this split idea that in one second the thing really scares the heck out of me and I didn't want to kill it or anything like that but another second I recognized how good they were and what they could do and the fact that they were beneficial creatures and harmless overall so I couldn't wait to get my first tarantula and unfortunately this was back in the 90s although the internet was around it wasn't quite as rich well you could say rich and I a lot of content on the internet right now is garbage but there wasn't much to be found on the internet most of what I would find about tarantulas and spiders I'd find in books that were sold at expos and occasionally we had that's when Barnes and Noble was around you go and they'd have a small section with a tarantula book in it so it was difficult trying to find out information it's not like now where if you know where to look and how to look you can find good information online you have to weed through a lot of crap but you can find it out there so I made a lot of A lot of missteps when I first got into the hobby with tarantulas, and some I'm embarrassed about because it's just you don't realize the things you're doing sometimes. For example, when I first got my rose hair, I was told you had to spray them down. Luckily, I'd been around animals most of my life and recognized rather quickly that she did not seem to appreciate that. So, little things here and there you pick up just by your own experiences. But there is a lot of information I wish I had before I got full bore into the hobby, and a lot of things that I had to learn about after the fact. And I think for many folks, it's the same thing. They they get the tarantulas, they think they've done their research, and then something pops up, and it's like, oh my lord, I didn't know this. Or the poor folks they're walking around pet stores and Petco and kind of make a you know ill informed decision to pick up a tarantula on the fly. Like, oh look, it, they got a little. Uh, spiked rose haired red butt tarantula whatever their common names are offering at petco and they decide to pick one up not knowing anything about their care and end up listening to a petco employee which is pretty much the worst thing you can usually do and they get home with this thing and don't know how to keep it so i had put together kind of a blog that addressed some of the big ones that we all should know about and wish we knew about once we got into the hobby and again for those of you out there that have been in the hobby for a while these are all going to be very very familiar but i do think it's fun sometimes to reflect on them because i do think especially if you watch how people interact online on forums and on Facebook groups we forget very very quickly and to our detriment what it was like to be new in this hobby and it bothers me because i think and possibly it comes from the fact that my background is in teaching And that whole idea, there's no such thing as a stupid question, never truer words have been spoken, most instances, there are some cases, but the idea that you need to be able to ask questions, you need to feel like you can come in, if you need clarification on something, no matter how simple the question may be, you should feel safe to do that. That's how we grow. And unfortunately, I think a lot of us in the hobby, we we get some experience under our belt and we forget what it was like to sit there and stare at a pile of dirt with a tarantula buried inside and not freak out about it. And we tend to when other people come to us for this, like, oh yeah, come on man, do some research online. It's easy. They bury themselves. Who cares? That's kind of the wrong attitude. That stifles any type of dialogue over this stuff and makes people very unwilling to put themselves out there and ask questions. And when I started Tom's Big Spiders, one of the big when it when it started to take off and people were actually checking my blog one of my big points of creating it was to give people a safe place to go and check for information. So hopefully by going through some of these, we'll remember what it was like to not know this information. And the next time somebody asks, instead of jumping all over them for them, go out there and do some research. Remember, sometimes you'd like to just hear it from an experienced human being as opposed to reading it in an article. And some people, unfortunately aren't at that point yet where they can recognize good information from bad information. So they find something online. A lot of people think these care sheets are like the the bee's knees. I can't believe I just used that expression. It's the corniest thing that's ever come out of my mouth. Dear Lord, I hope Billy doesn't hear this one. I'm going to be taking a ribbing. Um, they think care sheets are amazing. That's what everybody goes to. And only after they get into the hobby and do some serious mistakes because of one of these care sheets do they realize that they're total garbage and most serious hobbyists don't put any stake in them. So Moving ahead, we're going to talk about some of the things that we all pick up on while keeping these guys and get a few giggles. I'm going to share some embarrassing anecdotes for myself. And hopefully, you know, as we continue to go move on, I got a funny feeling I won't get through the entire list in this 30 minutes. We'll be able to do these again in the future and have some people maybe contribute some ones of their own. So moving off, I think the number one biggest one is um, a tarantula on its back is not dead. It's molting. This one almost bit me right in the butt with my first girl, and God, I, I think back how close this came to being a tragedy, and it, it still kind of makes me sweat a bit. When my wife and I first out, we uh, uh, moved out together, one of the first things we did was pick up some exotics, snakes, and a tarantula. I picked up a uh, Gramistola porteri from a marine who was keeping a lot of exotic animals, and I was ecstatic to have this animal. It just like, I was totally fascinated by it, and this was back in like 1995 or so. And at the time, I didn't know too too much about them. I had done some research, but there was still there were still huge gaps in my knowledge. Well, one morning I woke up before work. I was working at the marina at this point, doing boat repair, and got all dressed up, got my tools ready, and I went to go check on her, and she was upside down, and I was devastated. I'm like, my God, that we had only had her for a couple months. She's dead already. I called Billy over. I'm like, look at this. The the G port, actually the Rosie, we were calling her, is dead, and we were both really bummed out. So she's like, well, what are you going to do with it? And I. said, well, you know what, when I get home, I'll bury it, because I grew up on a farm, and I was kind (laughs) of morbid story, but I was kind of the one responsible for burying any animals that died, we had our own little cemetery, I won't get into all that, but it's kind of always been my thing that when a pet dies, you give it a proper burial, yeah, I'm weird, so anyway, I figured when I get home, I'll dig a hole in the back, we'll bury her, so I get home from work, I kind of, it had passed from my mind. I got home, I saw an enclosure sitting, there was an old sterilite container, and I was like, oh man, let me go take care of it. So I popped the top of the sterilite, and I was totally confused by what I saw because I opened it up, and there were actually two spiders in there. And of course, those of you that have had tarantulas before know now where this is going. There weren't two spiders. She had flipped over because she was molting. Tarantulas, when they molt, flip over on their back. I did not know that. I thought she was dead, I thought she was curled up, that was it. And so I come home and my first reaction was, dear God, she multiplied like gremlins or something. I don't know. It it took me a few minutes. I consider myself a fairly intelligent individual, but I was totally floored until it finally clicked. I was looking at the mole. So the moral of this story was I came dangerously close. Had Had I discovered her that afternoon on her back? I might have buried her right then and there and just imagine how that would have went. I still have this girl. It's been over 20 years, 20, I think 22, 23 years later, and I still have her and by far my favorite tarantula in my collection, but she would have died because I didn't know what I was doing. And this isn't the first time this has happened. I've heard many sad stories of people. I had one guy that I was talking to, this first one was a Rosie. She'd flipped over. The mom's like, I'm sorry. And she flushed it down the toilet. And he's like, years later, I realized she was molting. So... I think it seems obvious to anybody that's been in the hobby for quite some time that this is what they do. When they molt, they flip over under the back. Ideally, some will molt standing up. They pop the carapace. They squeeze their way out, almost like working your hand out of a glove. And that's how they grow. We know this. But for people that don't know too much about spiders that just pick one up at Petco, they don't. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say there are probably, sadly, a lot of spiders that lose their lives during the course of a year because of people not knowing this information than we all probably want to admit to. So again, please share if you have stories. I'll, I'll be posting this these guys up on uh, my blog and on Facebook so people can comment, but I'd love to hear stories about that. But I think number one would be a tarantula on its back is not dead, it's molting. When I, The second one I'm going to go into as I stutter there is the fact that mature males live far shorter lives than females. This is something I was not aware of when I first got into the hobby. Again, um, my second tarantula was a Fonapelma simani that I picked up at a tarantula expo. Or it was a reptile expo with a bunch of people had tarantulas. And I had read that these guys could be good beginner species, and it was only my second one. So I picked up what looked like a very lively adult. And I'm so used to, with my background being with, you know... More domestic animals, or livestock of that nature. When you you pick an animal, you look for something that's very, very lively. That's how you tell they're in good shape, and not realizing that with spiders, that's not necessarily the case. This particular spider was quite lively. I brought it home. I set up a burrow for it. At this time, I was using florist foam to create a burrow. Not something I would do again, because I think the florist foam would be a basically become a petri dish for bacteria now it's but back in the day that was something people did and i poured in a bunch of vermiculite and it basically wouldn't use its burrow it was out and about all the time constantly active it ate a couple times then stopped eating and i thought i was doing something wrong and i thought maybe it's molting well long story short it ended up dead after a little a little less than a year after i got it And I was devastated. I'm like, I can't believe I killed this thing. I did everything right. I kept part of the substrate moist. I gave it a burrow. I gave it a water dish. I didn't understand what happened. It wasn't until uh, several years later that I found out that I had bought a mature male. And back then when people would sell tarantulas, a lot of these dealers weren't completely reputable. And sadly, what would happen is they would get a wild caught specimen and either they didn't know enough about them to sex them or they knew they had a male and they just pawned it off on somebody for really cheap. Like, here you go, big, nice, beautiful adult spider. And the person would have no idea that they had just picked up something that was not going to live very long. So... Uh, one of the things people need to be aware of getting into the hobby is the fact that many of the male tarantulas, once they molt, will not eat again. That's something that took me some adjusting. Now, some will. I have a Pesilotheria smithy that is now, oh God, I think it molted over a year ago and he's still going strong. He's been eating like a champ. I've had other species that won't eat. My Hapalopus species, Columbia large males, have not eaten for me after they molted. Um, I've had other species, Acanthoscuria, Brocohersey male that's still eating like a champ. So it depends on the species, and that's something you want to kind of look up if you think you have a mature male. Check online, see what other people are saying. Some eat, some don't. When the male spiders mature, that is the point where that switch goes. They have one thing on their mind, like most males, it's to go out and to breed. They're trying to spread their DNA. So many of them will forego eating as they go out and try to find a mate and they become very very cagey they become very very active they'll be climbing the sides of the enclosures because in their mind they're trying to get out of this little cage to go out and find themselves a woman and so folks that end up with the male tarantulas often find that they're very active and they freak out because they're like I don't understand he's crawling all over the place Is a substrate bad why isn't he eating well unfortunately you've got a mature male so again I think that's something that people need to be cognizant of getting into the hobby I wish I knew because now when I go in and see like a male for sale I know how to sex them usually I I would definitely recognize a mature male whether it be from the emboli at the end of the pedipalps, or whether it be the hooks you just you learn to recognize them back then I didn't know any better and I'm sure I'm not the first one that got caught with that one so keep in mind if you have a tarantula if you bought a tarantula if you're raising a tarantula and you haven't been in the hobby very long and suddenly it stops eating and is wandering the cage and seems very restless you may have a mature male Next one on the list is one that literally could have bit me. That is, there are major differences between old world and new world tarantulas. For years, I operated under the myth that a tarantula bite was no more than like a bee sting. Uh, luckily, this wives' tail didn't end up biting me, no pun intended, in the can. At the same show I bought my AC money at, a dealer was selling a magnificent and terrifying spider labeled the Thailand Black Tarantula. This large ebony beauty was in a five-gallon tank, and it was baring its fangs and spastically slapping at anything that moved, which in this crowded show was quite a bit. There were kids going up, poking the glass, and it was like everybody was having a great time watching this poor, terrified spider slap at things. I was totally enamored with this animal because even back then I was kind of enticed by the more nasty spiders and and was really impressed by this threat display. And I was actually giving a lot of thought to buying it. Um, although Billy worried about its temperament, I did assure her that don't worry if I did get bitten, it wouldn't be that much worse than a bee sting. And, uh, Boy, would I have been wrong. The fact has is, had I bought this tea and had it bitten me, I would have been in for an incredibly nasty surprise. As an old world species, this tarantula's bite was medically significant. Although the bite wouldn't have killed me, I would have been in excruciating pain and suffered other complications like cramping, nausea, and vomiting. And that's where I think a lot of people that are just getting into the hobby and where um, Peco almost got themselves in a little trouble when they were going to expand how many tarantulas they sold. They were going to include a lot of new uh, new worlds and old worlds. Uh, this can get people in trouble because a lot of people still believe this myth. And sadly, I think it was partly created to kind of be like, no, tarantulas aren't that bad. They can't kill you. And, and that's good because they can't. But we do need to inform people that certain ones might not kill you they can put a heck of a hurting on you. They can really incapacitate you. So the difference between New World and Old World, New World species of tarantulas from North America, South America, and the Caribbean islands uh, kick urticating hairs from their abdomens as means of defense. And these barbed, irritating hairs get caught in skin, eyes, nasal passages, causing extreme discomfort. And folks that have worked with these species and have gotten haired before have found it is a very unpleasant experience to get haired. so we always talk about bites but please keep in mind that the herrings can be quite nasty too now, Old World species, or tarantulas from Asia, Africa, Australia, etc., on the other hand, lack the urticating hairs of their old uh, New World counterparts, and will therefore use their fangs and more potent venom for defense. So they will be more likely to bite. They are usually faster tarantulas, too. These are the ones that fall under the category of teleporters sometimes. Uh, baboon species, or species from Africa's Africa, being very popular Old World species, they can put a hurting on you, and that's something that people need to be aware of when getting into this hobby. I would say right up there with the top three things people need to be cognizant of when picking up their first tarantula pet. So some of the bites from these guys, they won't kill you again, but we're talking excruciating pain. I've heard people say it's it feels like somebody is taking a nail heated it up until it's red hot and then shoved it through the middle of their hand. That's what kind of pain we're talking about. And it can spread up through the extremity. So I've also heard people tell, and again, I have not been bitten, so I can't talk from personal experience, but people tell of the pain radiating up through their shoulder, their whole body. And we're talking about pain and an unimaginable level that painkillers won't touch and some of the other things is dizziness full body cramping including chest cramping which makes people feel like they can't breathe which is horrifying uh nausea and some of these symptoms can last long after the bite i just spoke to somebody who was bit by a piece of species and he, he gave a very graphic and excellent uh, uh, Account of what happened afterwards. And he said it was up to a year afterwards and he was still feeling issues from the, still having some of the effects from this bite. So that's something, again, not saying this to scare people, but you need to be informed what these things can do so that you exercise that caution. Because, yeah, you may play around with your new world species and this is one of the reasons why people need to think about handling before they do it but you get in the habit of sticking your hand out there and not worrying about the consequences then next thing you know you have a baboon that goes to run off the table you stick your hand out there and you get tagged totally different ball game so i do think that recognizing the difference between old worlds and new worlds and recognizing the hazards both a bite and the hairs can pose to people is very very important and I think we kind of have to let the whole bee sting thing die a bit because that is not the case that's that's very misleading even some of the species even if their venom is not particularly potent and I'm thinking of the therophosis species for example my therophosis stermi if that girl my girl which is about eight nine inches were to bite me The venom would be the last thing I'd be worrying about. What I'd be more worried about is those half inch to three quarter inch fangs ripping through my hand that can cause tendon damage that can cause serious imagery, imagery. Yeah, I'm creating imagery by describing it serious injury. And even if the venom were nothing, that bite is going to be nasty and it's going to leave quite an impression and quite a scar. Now, this next one is a bit of a hot topic, and that's uh involves handling again i'm going to give my little disclaimer i'm not dead set against handling i know a lot of people that handle i have my views on it and i have my reasons for why i don't handle mine but i also know many people that do it and they do it safely i'm not going to get into that part of it but what i do uh, have an issue with sometimes is the fact that new people getting into the hobby often do so thinking that you have to handle, that it's part of the hobby. Almost like if you were to go out and get a dog, that walking the dog is obviously an essential part of keeping dogs, keeping of having a pet dog they think that handling is a crucial and integral part of the hobby that everybody does it and that is not the case when I first got into the hobby it was again to help get over my arachnophobia and I had seen many people handling tarantulas I had thought their bites were a little more than bee stings and I had always thought that someday I need to be able to handle this when I'd have company over first question everybody would ask me usually is Have you handled it? Do you take it out? And when I'd say no, they'd be like, what's wrong with you? You chicken? You're afraid of it? And the fact was, I really kind of was. So that was okay. But my goal when getting into the hobby was always to build up to handling the tarantula. And the thing is, many serious hobbyists and ones that have been in the hobby for some time, and particularly people that keep old world species that should, in my opinion, always be hands off, will not handle their tarantulas. They, they try to create those good habits. They realize, I mean, in my case, if I get bit, I get stung, my first reaction is to flick my hand. So although the damage on me isn't going to be that bad, I'm probably going to end up injuring or killing my spider, which is one of the reasons I don't handle. Um, so a lot of people in the hobby do not handle, and I don't think people new to the hobby understand that that is not a prerequisite, that you're not expected to get into the hobby and start handling them. So I like to tell the story of the first time I did try to handle my spider it was after I had had her for several years and one night possibly had a couple beers um, went upstairs and I don't do this anymore by the way and I wasn't drunk I want to make that very clear but it was like good Friday evening or to go upstairs and I'm like you know I looked at her cage she looked so calm and docile and I went you know what tonight's the night. I'm doing it. I'm going to handle it. So I took a leather glove and put it on one hand because I was still kind of freaked out about this. And I found a big paintbrush. I'm an artist, so I had a nice big paint, oil paintbrush that I hadn't used. And I said, all right, here we go. So I put a Sterilite container on the floor because I knew I didn't want her to fall. I popped the top and I carefully stuck my hand behind her. And I took that brush and I carefully brought it up the front of her and just went to poke her a little bit to kind of steer her toward my hand. Well, Before I I barely touched her front legs, she leapt at the brush, latched onto it, and bit it. And I'm not embarrassed to say... I might have passed out. I basically the next thing I remember, I'm sitting slumped in my at the time we called it the snake room because I had like 40 snakes. I was slumped against my blood pythons enclosure. I'll never forget it and didn't know where I was for a second, kind of confused, and I looked down and there she was perched right at the end of her edge of her enclosure just kind of staring at me like what. And I basically with shaky hands got her back into the enclosure, put the lid on, put her back on the where her container went and walked downstairs and I think I very quickly made fun of myself to Billy and said I think I just passed out trying to hold the spider and she gave me a hard time we laughed about it at the time I thought it was because she was mean I was like my god all I'd heard about and we'll get into the myths of Rosie's being the best beginner species another time but all I'd heard about is these guys are very tractable you can pick them up and hold them no problem so it never even occurred to me she'd bite what I had seen was her feeding response she had always been a good eater for me every time I had opened that enclosure for probably seven years it had been to drop in prey and she just thought she was getting fed she let go of the brush immediately as soon as she figured out what it was it was laying there when I woke up and then just kind of moseyed on to see what was going on outside of her enclosure she meant me no harm however my attempt to hold her could have been disastrous because I know for a fact if she had bitten my hand, even with the glove, I would have absolutely freaked. I was still kind of scared of spiders at that point and would have injured her and I wouldn't have her right now. So I always have that in the back of my mind and I have handled since then. It was something of mine to just be able to show myself I was over it and I don't have a fear of them anymore. But people getting into the hobby need to know that you do not have have to handle and that a lot of us do not handle ours and we are real hobbyists I've literally had people tell me I can't wait till I can consider myself an expert because uh, I've held a tarantula that has nothing to do with being an expert nothing at all if you do that that's what you do on your time with your pet Fine, we're not going to get into that, but there is no point in keeping tarantulas that holding a tarantula suddenly renders you an expert. I would say, honestly, in some cases the opposite, because now if you're used to holding them and you move into old worlds, and like I said, you have a situation where that old world goes to bolt and you stick your hand out there, you could be in for a world of hurt. So just keep that in mind when you're getting into the hobby that you don't have to handle. Talk to some people, find out, make an informed decision. If you do handle, that's all I ask. And just understand that nobody should look down at you if you don't. And finally, this one will probably take us to the end of the podcast, but it's a big one and one I wish I knew about and I wish was more public. And that's the fact that care sheets are essentially the devil in this hobby, Uh, the temperature and humidity requirements included on care sheets in many cases should be ignored and I'll get into why in a moment but first I will talk about my own personal experience with care sheets when I first started getting heavy into the hobby and this is after keeping my G Porteri for years my we we call her the queen love this girl we started talking about what would happen if uh, she died and how depressing it would be because we literally had her since my wife and I Billy and I first moved out before we were even married probably shouldn't have said that, but we're married now, so it's okay, not living in sin anymore, and we were talking about how sad it would be, and that's what started me looking up to see what other tarantulas, species of tarantulas were out there, and once I zoned in on what I wanted to get, one of the species I was really looking at was a GBB, the see uh, Cyanopubicins or the green bottle blue and I started looking up stuff online and one of the things I found was this wonderful care sheet and it told me about where they came from the fact that they need to be kept on wet substrate and that where they come from it needs to be very very humid so you needed to keep the humidity up and I printed this thing out and I highlighted okay wet substrate, water dish. and I started thinking maybe I shouldn't get one of these because this seems like a little bit extra as far as care is concerned than some of the other species I was looking at Luckily for me, I got on boards one day and did a search for the GBB and found better information. And unfortunately, what I realized was at this time, some folks had been saying that you need to keep these guys super moist, and that was not the case. And if you can't find a lot of this now, but back when I first got mine, a lot of the stuff you'd look up would say that slings for this species were very difficult to keep and that was because people were keeping them wrong and why were they keeping them wrong because they were getting information from these terrible care sheets and with these fake humidity requirements so let's get it out of the way when dealing with tarantulas you should not be measuring precise humidity if you have a humidity gauge use it to understand when your house is getting dry and that's what I use mine for during the summer I live in Connecticut and it basically can get very very humid here so I don't have to worry so much about keeping things moist in the winter when my heater is running and my furnace is running it dries out the air greatly and what that humidity gauge tells me is all right now I need to be a little more diligent with keeping water dishes full and substrate moist I do not go looking for precise humidity guidelines I don't say, oh, I've got to keep my therophosis stermy at 80%. That's wrong. So ignore those. And I, I tell everybody the same thing take that, throw it away. What you should look at is if it's something in the, if, if it says it's a moisture dependent species, then you're going to be working with moist substrate. If it's a dry species, then you're using dry substrate. It's as simple as that. Everything should get a water dish. So if it does need a drink, even the arid species will want to drink. They can have it. But you should not be trying to maintain a specific humidity in any of your tarantula enclosures. It doesn't work that way. Um, I also I often use the the myself as an example of why saying something has an ideal humidity is ridiculous because sometimes they'll say, all right, you know what, this species lives in a place where it's 90% humidity, therefore it needs that to survive. There's a difference between an animal tolerating a certain humidity and being able to live in those conditions and having that be their ideal humidity. For example, I hate humidity. I hate heat. Technically, I live in a state where it can get 90 to 100 degrees in the summer, 90 to 100% humidity, just nasty, oppressive weather. Now, somebody could come in and go, well, it's summertime. Tom Moran is sitting here in 98 degree heat, 98% humidity. This is his ideal temperature and humidity. That's garbage. I can't stand the heat. I like it nice and cold. So there's a difference between an animal tolerating a certain range or benefiting from a little extra moisture and needing a specific humidity requirement. That's If you think of it that way, I think it makes it easier to understand. Many of them have a large range that they can live in, both with temperature and humidity. I've had some people go online and say, oh, this species, I had to put a heat lamp on it because this species, it says right here, it gets 80 degrees in the summertime, 90 degrees in the summertime. What they're not looking at is what does it get in the wintertime? In some cases, with some of these species from South America, temps drop to the 40s, 50s. Some of the Mexico, they get quite low. So So these animals are able to tolerate a range. Now, I wouldn't argue that they need to be kept at 50 degrees all year. That would be erroneous thinking. I also wouldn't argue they need to be kept at 90 degrees all year. A nice middle ground, 65, 68 to 70, 80 is fine. Around those temperature ranges would be perfectly fine for most species. Again, as evidence, I offer that I have a tarantula room that right now is kept at, depending on the shelf, it ranges anywhere from 72 degrees to 78, 77, 78 degrees. I keep my tarantulas any in those ranges and they do perfectly fine. I don't have specific heat requirements for each one. If I have certain species I know would probably do better, a little bit warmer, they go on an upper shelf. If I want them a little bit cooler, maybe mature male that I don't want to uh, die off before I can breed it, on a lower shelf where it's a little bit cooler. But they don't require specific temperatures or humidity. And that's what those care sheets are about. And I will say that having been in this hobby for quite some time, the majority of these care sheets are written by people that don't even keep the species they're talking about. I had a woman approach me once asking if I would recommend her site to people. And I went on her site and it was a bunch of care sheets for species that she admittedly had never kept. She had just been regurgitating information that she had read on Wikipedia or in one case, flat out stole from another care sheet that was also wrong. So that's what you got to be wary of. And going coming into this hobby, one of the biggest mistakes new people make is immediately hopping online, going, B. albopelosum care sheet, and pulling up the first thing that comes up and taking it as like the Bible for tarantulas. And that's the worst thing you can do. I encourage people to find a good source. I try to be a good source, but I also tell people to go out, look on arachnid boards, do a search definitely do a search before you ask the question cuz they get a little butt hurt if you don't and try to find information there go and look and see what other people that have kept these species have kept them at you'll find a wide variety of answers some people say yeah I've kept them at 80 all year no problem some people go yeah I had mine at 68 no problem I kept mine with a water dish I kept mine without although I don't agree with that all the time but you'll find a lot of information and better information from just either searching for what people have done that have actually kept them or has somebody. People email me all the time to just ask and double check information. That's perfectly okay. That's being prudent. That's being smart about this hobby. So again, one of the biggest things I wish I knew getting in this hobby and one of the biggest things I wish everybody knew before they got into this hobby, ignore those horrible care sheets. They are terrible. Go out, do some research, find out where they live, check the climate there or talk to some people that keep them. No, that's about it for now. Unfortunately, I ran over the 30-minute mark again. I got to get better at doing this. But if anybody enjoyed this particular installment and wants to hear more of these, I do have a lot more to go over. Um, Hopefully, again, for those of you who have been in the hobby for a while, you find this entertaining, and hopefully it'll help you think about things a little differently the next time somebody new to the hobby asks you a question. Again, for some of us, this seems like old news, but for somebody just finding these animals and just getting into the hobby, this can be a big deal. So that'll about do it for this one. Again, thanks so much. Please feel free to comment on my Facebook page. You can email me at tom'sbigspiders at outlook.com or you can leave a message on my website, whatever's more convenient. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time.